I am so excited for y'all to listen to today's remarkable episode with Barry Sternlich, the chairman and CEO of Starwood Capital. We cover so much in this episode, and one of the coolest parts was the story of him at age 32, starting with $0 in assets, and by 37 years old, controlling a hotel REIT that managed more than $20 billion worth of hotels with 120,000 employees across the globe, all by the time he was 37. That's inspiring to me because at Fort, we're at this unique point where we have about a billion in assets and we're really looking to go to 10. And one of the ways we're going to do that, and I talk about that with Barry, is how he would go from one to 10, is we're raising our first committed fund. And so if that's interesting to you, we would love to hear from you and teach you more about how we're thinking about that. And be sure to go to CREdaily.com and subscribe to their newsletter because on Wednesday, they're running a full feature on this episode with the transcripts and their own spin on it. It's incredible. Another incredible story that we talk about is Barry selling Caesar's Palace. It's one of the coolest real estate stories I've ever heard. And one of the ways you tell your real estate story when you're raising capital or you're raising money for your company or you're wanting to show your company off is your pitch deck. And betterpitch.com, one of our sponsors, makes the most beautiful pitch decks. And trust me, it matters. If you go and use their services, they will give you unlimited edits if you mention that the Fort Pod sent you. And last thing before we get started, go check out my friends at arikosseg.com. They are the kings of cost segregation studies. They've done over 1,600 in the last 12 months and saved investors $130 million in taxes. All of these things matter when you're building an incredible real estate company, which Barry has done. Starwood today is a $120 billion business. They're one of the largest on the planet. And I know today's episode you're going to love. And a lot of things now with AI coming, a lot of things will change for the hotels. But the hotel is an industry. It's a growth industry. People will travel. There's still a billion four Chinese and a, uh, Indians and a billion three Chinese. And they haven't hit the, hit the road yet, <laughs> but they're going to. And they may not come to um, Evanston, Illinois, but they're going to go to uh, Venice and Rome and they're going to visit the Eiffel Tower in Paris. And, and it's, um, you know, we have a U.S.-centric view, but travel is going to be a growth industry. It's a giant industry. It's going to keep growing. So, and it will be, how you find a hotel and even how it's designed will change with AI, but the actual mm. stay will still take place. You'll still go on vacation and you'll still want to see extraordinary things. So I think demands of consumers are are rising. I think they want more out of everything. Yep. So, you know, the the simple, I almost feel bad for the old fleets of hotels. Like, it's like, how do I convert this old bagel commodity product in all of real estate? You know, when you see in the office markets, the commodity office is not full. The building you're sitting in, we built it in the middle of the pandemic, yeah. at least 100% of it ourselves. And it's 100% leased in the pandemic, at twice the rents I thought, because it's not a commodity, it's the nicest building in the market. And in this particular market, I knew there were a lot of people who moved down here, they wanted small offices, family offices. So if you raise the blind behind me, there's like 15 family offices in that building. <laughs> and and they were not that price sensitive to rent because they just wanted 5,000 feet. And so they paid. A, a good rent. And, and they value the community. And they value the community. And, and and on the other hand, our firm was gonna buy a site. In fact, we won the RFP to build a building further down in Miami Beach. And this market isn't a big tenant market because there's not a lot of schools on the beach. Yeah. So 
it is a small tenant market. And if you built a building for small tenants, you'd probably fill it, but uh, medicals, supplies, things. So usually it's really, real estate is really block by block and, but know who your targeted audience is and any product who, and then don't deviate. Like my job in one hotel's half the time is being a police officer. Like the GMs are ordering stuff that's not green. Like, where did you get that from? Like the floor is like vinyl, like take that out right now. <laughs> it has to be wood. And they're like, oh, they don't realize I notice and people notice. And sometimes when I go to hotels, when I go, they know I like newspapers because I, I don't like reading my papers on my iPad. So they'll, they'll, I don't, but I don't want them to bring me a paper. Like it's, we don't have no paper in the one hotel. So don't, just don't cheat for me. Like, and then sometimes I'll, I'll, um, Maybe I do laundry and they bring it back in a cardboard box. No, 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 no. <laughs> laundry is supposed to go in a wicker basket with a raffia tie and reused. It's yeah. not supposed to have cardboard. So you've got to be, I call it the style police. You got to have vigilantes to hold your product in its category. Right? Yeah. You have to be focused on being consistent all the time. You can, you can change the color, you can, but you, 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 and you have to because you can be bored but you got to stay in your lane and own that customer. And if there's another customer that you like, you may have to build a different product for them. Yeah, You've got to stay here. What's interesting about one, because my partner was a very wealthy individual who, who owned a piece of the property across the street, the one South Beach. And he's like, who is this guy? Who's this customer? We need to do focus groups. I've never done a focus group in my life. <laughs> and I, I, I reminded him, I said, I got this. I know what's going to happen. <laughs> and we, we span all ages and we can fill the hotel with transients or with group and and we have it's an incredibly successful hotel as most of the hotels have been we're now i think the number one hotel in nashville we've been open a year we've number one hotel beating two four seasons in san francisco we've been open six months maybe i can't even believe the rates in san francisco it's a ghost town but our hotel's full <laughs> and the rates are great so uh toronto i think we took an old thompson hotel and renovated it it's very exciting new york city is a great hotel um in central park south so yeah, I think, I think um, that's that for me is my is me expressing creativity a little bit, but it's creativity with a reason. Yeah, you know, I do it for the P and L. Uh, the first W Hotel was um, times uh, the one on Forty um, Eighth and Lex, the W in New York. We spent sixty seven million buying the building, a hundred million to fix it up, and we made thirty two million our first year. So thirty two over one sixty is a twenty percent return on cost. Yeah unlevered it's like the best hotel i've ever seen in my life <laughs> and i had an analyst from prudential securities which i'll never forget at the opening of that hotel which was back in 1998 he said what do you do when this doesn't work i'm like it'll work <laughs> <laughs> but i was too young to know it wouldn't work but when we built san francisco the w in san francisco across the moscone center it was 87 million made 22 its first year so i wasn't chirping about it because i didn't really want the big kahunas, the Marriott's and the Hilton's and the Hyatt's and the Intercons to know. Yeah. But I, I knew I was onto something. Yeah. And then I kept replicating it. And it's funny, some of the future ones, if we, we own the, I think the first 10 we owned at Starwood Hotels, the company I, I founded. But there were some markets where I said, oh, I, I don't have to be there, like San Diego. And I, like we didn't put the money up, we let someone else do it and we still designed it and managed it. It was a home run. Like I was like, they did so well. <laughs> I wish I owned all of them, but, um, you know, they, they all, it, it's, but they need to be like any product. It needs to be refreshed. It needs to be, I was just recently in the W in Barcelona, which I helped design, but I left the company before it was finished. And it's in a fantastic location, right on the, on the Mediterranean there. 
an iconic building, but super tired. Yeah. Like I wouldn't stay there because it's now, it's not relevant. The design is black and magenta and it's like, it's offensive. It's trying so hard to be cool. It's definitely not cool. <laughs> you can't try that hard to be cool. You yeah. just are. If you have to say it, you're not cool. So, you know, one hotels is, is easier in some ways. We're, we're, we're supposed to be a store for nature and teaching people that they can live. It's one hotels because it's one world. We're all responsible for each other. Yeah. And so they, when they burn coal in China, it carries in the air and pollutes California, creates rain and impacts the Rocky Mountains. So we're one, we're one world and that's why it's called One Hotels. I love it. All right, I wanna go back because there is a lot more that you do in, besides hotels. And I'm at a similar place to where you were where I'm gonna start the story in my career. But I first wanna start with, did you know as a young person that everything that you touched was gonna be huge? <laughs> You have one of the largest real estate companies. We're talking about one hotel. You rattle off 35 global hotels like it's nothing. I mean, your story, which I've studied a lot, is just big after big after big. Was that something you thought about early on? No. No, I had no no, no idea what would become of my life. And I, I sometimes wonder about that, like what kept me going? Yep. And why did I, when we were running, Starwood, Starwood Lodging started as a recap of a, a couple hundred million dollar bankrupt REIT on the New York Stock Exchange. And then we just kept going and we could raise money. We kept going and, and we all of a sudden it was a $5 billion REIT on the New York Stock Exchange. And then we bought Weston Hotels. That made us a $7 billion REIT. But at the same time we were closing Weston, I decided to go after ITT Sheridan, which was 14 billion. And we were 7 billion buying a $14 billion company bidding against Hilton, which had been around a long time. And I'd kind of invented this company two or three years earlier. They bid cash. We didn't have cash to buy ITT, so we bid stock. My shareholders were loyal. The stock went up when we made the bid, so we, our currency was worth more. And we wound up buying the company, and we were all of a sudden a $20 billion company. And you were 37? I was 38. 1995, we started. 38. Okay. I had $120,000 employees in 80 countries, and I had no idea what I was doing. Okay. <laughs> you, you said a lot there. I've got notes, but okay. Well, the first thing I was going to ask is you and Bob Faith both went on to create big companies. Yeah. So it's clearly there was some magic there. But okay, you said by <laughs> 38, you had 120,000 employees in how many countries? 80 countries. Okay. And six years earlier, you had like two guys and an assistant is what I'm assuming. That's correct. Yeah. So I don't know how to ask this in like the least loaded way possible, but <laughs> how do you scale a company from two guys and an assistant? to 120,000 people in seven years. I mean, that is, you really actually that, that can't is, find that. that just say it, it sounds like pretty amazing. You just, can't actually find the story anywhere else. <laughs> Even Blackstone. So I got, I got in the RTC resolution, the savings loan trust uh, crisis, I got let go from my job in 91. And a friend of mine said he'd back me in my own firm. I was looking for a job, but I, was in, I didn't like the feeling of getting fired. So I said, so that's interesting. And he gave me $10 million. Another family that I met at the same time gave me 10 and my old boss gave us one. So that was $21 million. I was an acquisition guy. I, wasn't, I didn't even consider myself a real estate guy back then because I did corporate stuff for JMB for my old firm. So I called Bobby, who was at Tramwell Crow, and I said, because I was modeling, and a lot of people model their own experiences. I was modeling my alma mater, JMB, where Neil Bloom was the acquisition guy and Judd Malkin was the asset management guy. At the time, I think JMB grew to have 10,000 people. 50 of us reported to Neil and 9,000 
550 reported to Judd or 950. <laughs> so I was Judd, I was Neil. I was the acquisition guy, but I needed somebody to run the stuff. And so I called Bobby and said, you, you, you know, we split the firm and you, you, you'll manage. And I ran out around the country basically with one of the fellow. We bought 8,000 apartments in 20 months, 18 months. And then I sold them to Sam Zell. Mm-hmm. And Bobby wanted to live in Texas. I'm from New England. And so we split and we had bought a multifamily management company, but we sold all our multifamily assets. So Bobby took the remnants of the company we bought it was, and uh, created uh, Graystar. He's done amazingly well. And I left Chicago and moved to Connecticut. He moved to, I think, somewhere in Texas at mm-hmm. the time and wound up in Beaufort. I think that's how you say it, South Carolina, Beaufort. Mm-hmm. So, and he built a pretty amazing, multi, one large, I think the largest multifamily property management company in the comp- country. Mm-hmm. And I went off and started doing hotels. And, you know, I took, he took, I think, one employee. Everyone else went with me to the to the east but i think it's kind of like you never look back i didn't think i i never thought i couldn't do it i thought i was i i have a pretty good memory i work hard i think i have an unreasonable amount of common sense and i i just never thought i couldn't do it i don't know and then i got scared like i'm going up the elevator at the saint regis and i'm on national television uh making my bid to control itt sheridan which was one of the largest conglomerates i think it's the largest conglomerate in the world was run by a patrician gentleman named Rand Arascog, who's since passed. And their office is on Sixth Avenue. I think Rand had six secretaries. You know, I went to see him. I was like, <laughs> I was like going to the White House. You know, it was like I had to get through a, a, a wall of assistance. And, and I, I was like, I had this company I created from air uh, was making a bid for this $14 billion iconic company. At that point, they owned a Yellow Pages business. They owned a piece of Madison Square Garden. They owned, they were a conglomerate, but they had, ITT share they had the Sheridan, which is what I wanted. That company that also owned the St. Regis, and I was trading assets like the a thirty year old Embassy Suites in Tempe, Arizona, and the King Eight. We had a clothing optional casino in Vegas, and we were trading better than they were trading. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to upgrade. I'm going to sell them this crappy hotel, the King Eight, I mean, another roadside hotel in Vegas for the St. Regis. So this is easy, <laughs> and I got away with it. But so I knew what I was doing from that perspective, but I didn't know, and I was scared to death of how I would manage a company of that scale, you yeah. know. And and yeah, I was you, I was worried because we were carrying a boatload of debt when we merged that like the money from Egypt wouldn't show up, you know. Like how do I know this is going to show up? And then I had three companies, I had three of everything. I had three heads of IT because I had Starwood Lodging based in that. Most of the people were in Phoenix. I was here. Then I had Weston Hotels, which was based in Seattle, and Sheridan, which was based in New York and Boston. And I had three of everything, three heads of marketing, three chief counsels, three heads of IT. And I was like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, which one am I going to choose? <laughs> so I went out and I, I got like Anderson Consulting to help me cho- interview and choose. And I say, okay, they take this guy. And then I made a lot of bad picks. I, I made some, I, I realized that I didn't have the right team. And so, you know, learning on the job when you're public it's quite a quite something to have to do, you know, because you you all your I was the wonderkind and then I was the dope dope. At the same time, you you may recall our stock was we were the biggest hotel and company in the world measured by cash flow. And we we didn't exist three years earlier. We were bigger than Hilton and Marriott. Not as number of hotels, but because we owned a lot of hotels, we had bigger cash flow. And Marriott did not like this. We were growing like a weed. So Bill Marriott went to Washington and got rid of or 
ask them to remove. We had this unique structure called a paired shared REIT. And I thought investors would care about this. And it was part of our secret sauce to why we were trading at a good multiple, because what it did was it allowed the management and the hotel to be owned by the same investors. And in the old days, the management had to be separate and the, the two don't, they conflict. Like if you're the management company, you get paid off revenue. So the higher the revenue, the more money you make. Right. But you do that at the expense of profits. Like if you checked into my hotel and I gave you a Rolex watch every time you checked in, yep. I would have high revenues and the owner would go bankrupt. Yeah, because that makes sense. So I'm saying I'm a better mousetrack. You, you have the whole profit stream. You get the management company and the asset. And there were five of these. They were grandfathered. And I found one of them and I took control of it. And that became Starwood Hotels, Starwood Lodging, then Starwood Hotels, and then Starwood Hotels and Resorts Global. And I was selling that. Marriott said, that's an unfair advantage. So they went to Washington and I'm like, I'm a young kid. I'm like, I'm going to tell everyone, I'm going to tell the White House, everyone should have a paired share REIT because if the management company really cared about the asset, the markets wouldn't get overbuilt. There would never be hotels built because the management company would care. So I was naive, but Bill Merritt's daughter or son was married to Orrin Hatch's kid. And I, um, they, this, so they, they threw this into a Budget Reconciliation Act to get rid of the paired shared REITs. And I'm going to go down to Washington. I'm going to tell everyone. <laughs> so I, I was ready for my moment, you know, in Washington. Oh boy, was I overmatched. <laughs> I mean, so I, I go down and I meet with uh, Clinton's budget director. I can't remember his name. He's still around. And he, I, oh, it was Larry Summers. And I said, you've got this wrong. Like, and I explained to him because they said they'd save like $100 million if they get rid of the 10 parachute reads. And I proved to him that wasn't true. He says, well, you can just kill us on the hill. So then I called all my, I knew all the senators from New Jersey and Connecticut and, and New York. I lived in Connecticut at the time. And they said they would help me. And, and I started making some serious progress on defeating this bill. And then Warren Hatch attaches it to an IRS restructuring bill, which is voted like a hundred to zero. Like everyone votes for the IRS restructuring <laughs> and I die. Like my structure dies. And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> so I thought we were making such progress to kill. I went down to the, the office of budget and whatever review. And I'm like, how did you model this? How did you come up with this? So the truth was Bill had been in the Republican party for like 25, 30 years. And he's a Mormon and Orrin Hatch was a Mormon. And I was DOA. I was dead on arrival. I, I never had a chance to make my great speech in front of Congress <laughs> and tell them why this was the best vehicle ever and they should replicate this stuff. And I want everyone to have parachute roots. So, which is true. And why do they not want everyone to have paired share reads? Why sh why wouldn't everybody be one? They they wouldn't give you the time of day to talk about it. It's like this politics, and what you learn in Washington is it's not necessarily the issue in front of them. It's the fact that that guy didn't vote for me for that committee, and I didn't get that chair three years ago, and I'm never going to do anything they want. So Washington is a whole. It's not business. It's not common sense. It's a whole nother, as you can see today, a whole nother stream of stuff. It's power, and it's it's power <laughs> and it's intoxicating to to walk to the senators and congressmen and and they wouldn't listen i mean i really didn't have a chance you know the guy was bill marriott had been donating to the republican party probably for 50 years and i i was i was dead and our stock the call, the, went from 54 to 17 i think because we had to convert from a reit to a c corporation we eliminated our dividend and took a little, and then a whole bunch of people have to stay, they wanted our dividend and they didn't get one. And they, and so all this is happening when I'm 39 years old and I'm like, oh my God, what did I sign up for? But you power through it. You know, I 
stayed the course. I think one of the things I tell people is leaders, if you're leading a company or even ahead of any, your job is to absorb uncertainty. Like you can be scared to death, but you can never show that. Yeah. Because if you're scared, everyone will be scared. If you say it'll be okay, it'll be okay. So I said it was okay and then I was scared to death. So <laughs> you know, it would be okay. I, you know, it's funny that you want things that nobody knows about. I, I could tell you about an, another situation. No, no, we don't have time. <laughs> Maybe I okay. will. Well, I will tell you this. You beat me to it because our mutual friend that I had dinner with last night said, you have to ask him about a shared pair of REITs. And I have two questions that come out of that. One, why were you able to see that they were an opportunity? And to be clear, was that the first REIT that you bought and you were going to use that as the vehicle to continue acquiring? So two questions. How did you have this grand vision that, oh, this is the vehicle and nobody else was seeing it? It wasn't the first public company we'd taken. There was a company called Angelus Participating Mortgage Trust, and it had like a $30 million market cap. And for some reason, when I was 35 or something, I decided this 34, it'd be interesting to own one of these things. So we bought it and I sort of parked it in our company. I don't think it was more than $30 million. What did it have in it? A bunch of mortgages. That's it. And it was going bankrupt. Yeah. And you were like, I'm just going to buy this thing. I want the shell. I thought it would matter. <laughs> I don't know why. I can't remember what I was thinking. I was 33. So we bought this. And then when our our second fund was was doing mezzanine debt and the, the opportunity in the equity markets, we thought wasn't that interesting. So we shifted to get the same kinds of returns we thought in, in mezzanine debt. And we decided to take that public, I decided to take it public through that vehicle. So we folded all the paper into this shelf wreath that was probably listed on pink sheets and issued all the stock to ourselves. So we owned like 90% of the shares. But then we uh, added, we raised an IPO or secondary because it's already public, it's not technically an IPO. And we raised money to the vehicle and then we bought another company. That company was called Starred Financial. And that's how Starwood Financial was born. And today it's called iStar. It changed its name because we had Starwood Hotels, Starwood Capital, and Starwood Financial. And everyone was getting all confused. So uh, we changed it to iStar and run by, we spun off one guy, two guys to that company and they ran it. And Jay Sugarman is running it today. It was running it 20 years ago. I, after buying all those apartments that I mentioned that we sold to Sam Zell and tripled our investors' equity in 18 months, I went to see Westinghouse which was having a going out of business <laughs> in Pittsburgh. And we'd bought apartments at that point and a little bit of land. And I said, do you have any apartments? They said, no. I said, do you have any hotels? I was like, go fish, you know, like, do you, what do you, do you have any land? No. Uh, yeah, we have this portfolio. It's under contract to this guy, uh, another money manager in Boston, run by this fellow, Chick Hill, in Memphis, Tennessee. And it's not closed yet. And, you know, maybe Chick will do the deal with you. So Again, I don't know who does this stuff, but I did. I went to see Chick Hill <laughs> and I said, Chick, we'd be more, more fun to partner with than that other group. I think it was AEW in Boston. Nobody knows these stories, by the way. Yeah. This is so old. Nobody's heard this Come stuff. on. <laughs> so, so I go to see Chick. He loves baseball. I'm a New England kid, but I, I'm not from the South. And we kind of hit it off and, and he agrees to, to switch and do the deal with us. One of the things the company did was called Davidson Hotels, was they managed assets for this REIT, this hotel, it was called Hotel Investors Trust. Mm -hmm. And I could see, I, so I looked at that company, which was this paired shared REIT, and there were, there were five of them, but they would be ignored in the capital markets. Like nobody paid any attention to them. And I could see that the company was basically liquidating. It had like 
$200 million of debt. And I think it had like an eight or $10 million market cap, equity market cap. It was, and it, to pay off its debt, it was just selling hotels one by one after another. So again, I thought the vehicle was interesting. I thought the shareholders, people would care about the elimination of conflict of interest, that it would matter. And so we went, and they didn't have great assets. I mean, I, I can't remember what our nicest asset was, but it wasn't nice. <laughs> but I went out and I, I, I approached, there were four, we found out who owned the debt. There were four people who, <laughs> this gets to a really funny story. <laughs> there were four shareholders. So we bid them the debt and we bid it like 60 cents. And you know, everyone was like, we're not gonna sell it to 60 cents. I said, well, here's the math. Your, your debt isn't worth par. And so we got one of them, put their debt up for an auction. And like, uh, I think it was Hancock and we bid it because we knew why they were selling it. Cause I had just been to see them to tell them their debt was worth 60 cents. So we bid like 70 cents and we bought it. And then the, we, we managed to buy the other two, three of the four debt holders, including Hancock, but we needed the last one, which was Wells Fargo. And I'm going to come back to that story because <laughs> it's really interesting for your viewers. Okay. But anyway, so we took all the debt of the company and we basically said, we'll cancel the debt. And we put in some assets that we bought into the company. And that became Starwood Hotels. And at the time, they were called Hotel Investors Trust. So we're going to call it Starwood Hotels Investors Trust. And that would reflect the, the acronym is Starwood Hotels Investors Trust. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't like the acronym. So we kept the stock symbol of HOT. And that became the vehicle. And then we, we basically, I don't think we paid off the debt, actually. We... We did an IPO or secondary, and, we, and then we paid off all our debt at par. So I took all our money out, and then Merrill Lynch helped us out, a fellow named Marty Chico, who's a good friend, and he lent us the money to buy the debt. And there's multiple interesting stories about this, but the mo- one of the more interesting stories for your, and it's, I'm a young guy. I'm super frustrated. I want to buy this debt from Wells Fargo. I tried every, every skill I had. Charming, you know, tough. I tried everything. Grace, you know, I and I, I left this fellow at Wells Fargo a, a, a voicemail. You know, I was totally frustrated. I'm 34 years old, and I'm like, you know, this isn't worth par. You should sell us this pay. He knew that I was so pregnant that I would pay par for their paper because I need to get all the debt yeah. in order to restructure the company. You know, and I, I might have said something like, "You're an asshole." <laughs> or well, it turns out. We wound up paying par for the debt and I got them out, but he kept that recording. And for, I think, well, that was, I think in almost 10 years, Wells Fargo would never do business with Starwood. And that, and today we're the second largest real estate borrower in the nation. (laughs) But that fellow became like, almost became the CEO of Wells Fargo. And he was like, he was probably 38 at the time. (laughs) And an interesting lesson. And, you know, I say, ah, I was like youth. I didn't know what I was doing. I was like super in. I didn't mean it. But apparently when people came to visit him, he took great pride in playing that <laughs> recording for of me being a, a jerk. So, you know, you learn as you get older, you get a little more humility. But it was a funny le- lesson for me about you never know, you know, who you're going to deal with later in life and you never know where they're going to go. So try to, like every interaction is a branding moment. Try to be nice. And that's that was an important lesson. The other interesting lesson was Blackstone was our partner uh, when we bought Davidson Hotels because we didn't have enough money to buy the company and they didn't have a real estate arm. But they had a fellow that had been working for, that I kind of worked for at my alma mater and he was advising them. And I brought them this deal and we split the deal and we we did really well. We made a lot of money. And 
they said, let's do hotels together. And I said, well, I, I, at the time I had the Prisker family, I had a whole bunch of families as ifs as investors. And I, they had the, they had the right to any deals we had, not, not somebody I, I wasn't working for. Steve uh, Schwartzman wanted to hire me to run the real estate group, but he hadn't done a real estate deal. So I wasn't sure they'd get into real estate, which is really funny because today <laughs> they're the largest in the world. Yeah. Um, and it's, the majority of their earnings come from real estate. John Gray was the analyst on looking at hotel investors trust oh for them gosh. back then. And it was a very interesting because they didn't want, they, they saw our position, which we didn't control the debt. And they're like, we don't want to get involved here. And I said, well, we were pregnant. And then <laughs> we, when we got control of two thirds of the debt, which you need to restructure the debt, my investors didn't want to give them a free option anymore. So we went on our own, but that's another story for another day. But I turned down Schwartzman to run the real estate group. It's in his book. It actually mentions it. And I have it in the notes. Yeah. I, I, I might as well just ask it now. Even as we look at today, how do you think about Blackstone today? It's it's Starwood, Blackstone. I guess maybe you throw KKR in there. Brookfield. I'm do you the, think the about them largest. often? Do you compete the Blackstone? With, yeah. Like, how I do think you about think? them every day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we run the first and second largest non-traded REIT. You know, we often... In big deals, we can be pesky. We're not quite as big as they are, but you know we can form consortiums and we have many similar investors. We try to stay out of their way because they have so much capital to put out that they're likely. Uh, there's an interesting story. We bid on a company and I left Star Hotels and came back to Star Capital in 2005. There was a company that I had my eyes on that had been attacked in France by a a, a raider named corporate raider named Asher Edelman, and this company, in order to fend him off, and the company owned an unbelievable portfolio of hotels in Paris. And I knew from Starwood Hotels, it was a, that's the number one travel city in the world and one of the hardest markets in the world to get into. Starwood Hotels, as large as we were, we only had one hotel in Paris, and so they had the Creon, which is one of the most famous hotels in the world, and six other fantastic hotels in Paris. And I, for some reason, had visited, I guess I decided to see if this, I, if the company would sell. And I visited a woman named Anne Claire Tattinger from Tattinger Champagne in Paris and sort of was trying to convince her to let us take them private. And lo and behold, there was a, when, when Asher had attacked them, they had, they'd partnered with a fellow named Albert Frere, who was a Belgian billionaire industrialist, but his standstill was coming off. And she called me and said, we're going to sell the company and you should participate. And I'm like, I don't think I really want to participate because we'll never win. And she said, you know, I was assured by the bankers at Rothschild that, that we'd get a fair shot. I was in Nantucket. It was in the summer of, of 2005. So I said, really? I'm not going to waste our time? $3.2 billion transaction, so big. And we, our fund at the time was like $600 million. I'd just come back from Star Hotels and I was coming back to Star Capital. So the funny thing was like, so we went over there and we did the work and I had been a CEO of a public company. So I knew I didn't approach her like a financial guy. I was asking about HR policies, not about margins. I was asking about retention, not about like decimal places. And why did your, your EBITDA drop 0.001%, you know, <laughs> so which other firms did. So we, Primera, CVC, Blackstone, KKR, they were all bidding against us. But I was basically spent my time loving up Anne Claire. So we were, I would say, guided to our second bid. We, we made the second round, which I was shocked at. We actually had partnered with TPG because I didn't have the money. Yep. And the pricing got a little high for TPG, at least they thought it did. So they dropped out. So now I didn't have the money to buy the company. But I thought I could raise it because I thought it was really exciting assets. 
We had enough money to probably close it, but the fund would have had one asset. <laughs> it would have been a $600 million fund with one investment, which would violate the concentration provisions of the fund's documents. So we, we had this auction, and, and you mentioned Blackstone. So Blackstone, the second round, they bid. The second bid, they bid. So they bid a price, and then we bid a price in the, in the auction. And then they threw in a new bid after they saw they were going to lose. And their bid was one euro more than anything Starwood would pay. I'm like, you can do that? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, auction's closed, and they sold it to us. And I know Steve, who has a home in south of France, was kind of upset because we had a beautiful hotel, Martinez in Cannes. We had this hotel in uh, the Palais de Med in, in Nice. So we had a, a beautiful portfolio of hotels, and I was able to raise all the money, and I funded it. it was I traveled the world and decided for some reason I would raise the money from wealthy families in every continent so I'd have eyes and ears to help grow the, the business. So we did raise all the money and we, we bought the company. And, and it was, so Blackstone and us, we were friends. I mean, we, we finance their deals today through Star Property Trust. They'll finance our deals through BXMT, their mortgage trust. We split deals and, and we went after, the, we had tried to buy extended stay hotels when it went bankrupt the first time. We formed a bidding consortium with TPG I forgot what other part it was TPG. And then Blackstone came in late and back center bridge. And I think it was square mile in, in, and they, we bid against each other in a conference room like this in Atlanta. The bidding started at like four in the afternoon and by two in the morning, we're still bidding. Y'all were all in the same room together. Yeah. Bidding and we're going out of the room, deciding to bid again, bid, bid. All the creditors are in the room and we get to, we owned. There was seven, it was a group called Lightstone had paid like 7.8 billion for this enterprise and they put $7 billion of debt on it and the whole thing collapsed in the GFC. And we had bought all the debt from four to 4.4 billion for like pennies. So if the bidding got to 4 billion, we were gonna own the company because for a dollar, we'd had the next $400 million of value. Interesting. So the bidding gets to like 3,925 and again, we're out of money. We don't have the money <laughs> to put up our half of the money. And TPG and their infinite gra graciousness said they'd lend us the money at 20% to play. I'm like, I, I, can't, I can't borrow money from you at 20% <laughs> to try to buy this company because it wasn't obvious this thing was going to work. So it was interesting. We lose and Blackstone and the other guys buy it. They take it public, make like four times their money or three times their money. But what was interesting is I actually tried... In that room, we were actually fighting to be what's called the, the sponsor of the bankruptcy. We, we, when you go bankrupt, you have an opportunity to do the sponsor of the bankruptcy proceeding, and then there's a breakup fee. So you call, you know, it's called the, I forgot exactly the technical term, but you get a breakup fee, a topping fee if you're topped when it goes to open auction. So that was, they were actually the plan, the sponsor plan to reorganize the company. In the time it took from when we started, I realized that I should have bought this company. I, I, I made a mistake. And I tried to go back and bid it after, and pay the breakup fee because I thanked them or congratulated them without actually shaking their hand, I don't think. But I congratulated <laughs> them at two in the morning because I was super tired. <laughs> the judge on appeal basically said that you've already accepted the bid. You can't bid against them and let them buy the company. I was like, wait a minute. That wasn't, that's not the bankruptcy law. There's no court of appeals in bankruptcy. They can do whatever they want. But that was, that was another lesson. I'll never thank anyone again at a bankruptcy. <laughs> and an opponent of bankruptcy. I bought Sea Island in bankruptcy too. But there we, we, we partnered. So Blackstone, the funny thing is, extended stay 
in in the pandemic, the stock trades down from 20. And I tried to buy it six times when it was public. Trades down from 20 to eight or nine dollars a share. We buy 10% of the company. And I know we're gonna take it private, like, because now I have the stock really cheap. And Blackstone had been in the stock, but they traded out of it and we still held our stake. So we wound up making a bid, taking it private, and I called Gray and, and said, we should do this together because I knew they taught me. <laughs> but here I had a huge competitive advantage because I own 10% of the company at nine. We wound up taking it private at 21. And it was, it's been a good deal for everyone. Why'd you, you know? take it private? It's my job just to like, you know, make money for our, for our partners. Got it. So, you know, I took it private and recapitalized it and we've been selling hotels and it's done really well. You know, it's done really well. How do you buy a REIT? Like, I know how you buy it if you're just an individual going in, but you have built this career of going after these public companies. For the average listener that's listening, assuming they had some money behind them. I worked worked in, after college, I was, uh, my mom, when her three boys went to school, she became a stockbroker. And I worked in the mailroom of Lehman Brothers when I was in high school. So, because then when you could say on your resume, you worked at Lehman Brothers, yeah. even though I worked at the mail room. Like <laughs> <So, laughs> the petroleum distributor, the guy who's worked at the gas station. <laughs> so I was the, I worked at Lehman Brothers. And I don't think I got out of the mail room. <laughs> I did a good job. I, I had another job. I forgot. It was another summer. I was in charge of like reconciling bad trades on the New York Stock Exchange. And it was like, you had to like match the tickets back then. It was a joke of a job, but at least I tried to stack my resume to get a job. Yeah. Because I was not a finance major. I never took a math course in college. And, and didn't take algebra too, <laughs> something else nobody knows. <laughs> so I went to Brown specifically so I didn't have to take a math class. I was scared of math. Anyway, I what were we talking about? I asked you how you buy a REIT, how you buy these. So we, I'm always companies. looking at the stocks to see what might be really cheap. Yeah. And then with, uh, with an idea that maybe I could organize it, take private of it, take it out. And do you have a team, like, is it you or do you did you hire a team along the way, even going back to the early days? where you had a team of bankers and finance guys helping you put the whole equation together? Or is this you on a napkin pretty much going, this makes sense, and then handing yeah, it to the team? Yeah, me more on a napkin. I mean, I we have a big team, but today I have a team. Back then, I had a much smaller team. <laughs> I mean, we've, we, today we have, I don't know where you stop counting, we probably have 19,000 employees, but it started capital to parent, probably 350. The mortgage company, another 300, 350. We have Two or three thousand people on our property management arm based in Dallas, and then hunting thousands in the hotel company today. So, and title company, we got other businesses, but yeah, we try to hire good kids who can. I'd much rather have them sleuth it out than me. Yeah. But I, I spent my career when I started trying to find these undervalued public securities. You know, the company there was a company in Japan that had a whose land was more twice the value of the company. There's a company today in Japan. I won't say which one, but. It's real estate assets are worth three times the stock price. And for three years, we've been trying to take it private. You just can't, it happens to be in an industry that government will be concerned about, but I don't want that part of it. They can have that for free. I'll give it to them. I want the real estate assets. And we took a big stake in that company, but we've not been able to convince them to take it to to max, even restructure, just spin out the real estate. Right. So, you know, that one hasn't worked, but Orient Express Hotels, which got taken private by LVMH, you know, Belmont, it turned to, became Belmont and we bought a stake and then we bid on it and got taken out by a huge number by LVMH, but it made sense for them. And National Golf, we take in private other companies that were tr- trading on the New York Stock Exchange. So, you know, we try to find things that, that, that we think are undervalued and I don't have any 
fear about buying a REIT. Uh, we took private uh, Canadian hotel REIT called Milestone. One of the guys here found that opportunity. It was it was mis it was overlooked because it was listed in Canada, but its assets were in the United States. Mm-hmm. In the pandemic, we raised seven hundred million dollars in a month to basically target companies, including companies like ESH, which we bought at the time, to buy really cheap REITs that have been misvalued by the public market. The public market you know, has wretched excess and wretched discounts. And real estate is rarely valued correctly in the public markets. So the problem is when you take it private, even if it's at a discount, the board may say, you got to pay me full value. Yeah. So you have to, we took private two companies in the UK recently. Uh, we have a third one we didn't take private because the deal was too big for us. We like the assets, but in this climate, we were pretty sure we couldn't raise the money to take it out. So we're always looking for opportunities to deploy capital. It's my job. And the team is broad and talented today, so I'm more coaching than finding. But I still look, and I, I like finding crazy things to do. But that deal in Japan came from your friend, Rick. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he called me about it. Yeah. All right. This is a selfish question. My company has about a billion in AUM, and I want to go to 10 in the next, I'll, I'll say the next five, seven years. Uh, we own 100% of our GP, my partner and I, and 100% of our operating company. We've never taken on partners or anything. If you were in my shoes and it was like we we're buying industrial and you were going to go from one to 10, how would you think about ownership? I think one of my downsides over time is I've tried to own too much of everything. And I would just imagine your answer isn't you can, you have to own more of every deal to get big. You actually have to own less to grow. I think that's generally true. How have you thought about ownership? Well, the parent company, when I raised the first money, when we started, I gave, they let them, they bought 20% of the parent, you know, it was nothing in the parent at the time. So (laughs) (laughs) they, uh, I gave them 20% for funding our overhead. So they put up a couple million, actually it was like a million, million and a half dollars. We borrowed at recourse. Bobby and I, it didn't matter because we never had the money to pay it back. So (laughs) we're 30 years old. I was 31. I think Bobby was 29 or probably a 30. He's a little younger than me. But yeah, I mean, the parent selling a minority stake is a good idea to get capital. Like if somebody commit, and I I seated another manager in the securities business, debt business actually, and I I put in 25 million. I got two other guys to put in 25 million. He couldn't raise any money on his own. And today, the 75 million is now, I think, a seven or $8 billion manager. So, and I, for that, I got like 5% of the company. You know, the other guys got 5% also, but they they're sunsetted. They went away after X years. Mine is still in place. So you know, I, I don't think it's if you if you're, you have to figure out what your limit is to how to get to ten billion. Is it capital? Is it human capital? Do you need to raise bigger funds? Because you don't necessarily have to sell. But if you're in a rush, you know, somebody like us with fifteen or sixteen sovereign wealth funds as clients, you know, we can get the money if you're good. Yep. So sell us twenty percent stake. We'll do a deal right now. And then you can do be an industrial guy. So you want um, to do a deal yeah, live do on it. a podcast? Let's do it live on broadcast. <laughs> we'll have to assess your financials. <laughs> so no, we're always. It's funny because it's more and more. I'm looking to back people that can do niches. We're in a way we're blessed and handicapped by our scale, right? We we have to do big things. And some young man I met in uh, I was in Riyadh, and I this a young American from San Francisco came up to me and said, "I'm doing this stuff. I'm here to raise money." I was like, "We'll put up all the money." Like, we'll be your limited partner. You can have the profits. You can promote us just like I promote my investors. Because yep. we can't, in a way, we're capital allocators. You yep. know, our, our job is to 
put the money out and we can't manage this stuff ourselves. I mean, it's too granular. And in the world, you know, you have to think about the world and everything, like the pyramid of scale, right? There's probably now zero, but it used to be five or six deals done of $10 billion or more in real estate a year, maybe, maybe, or 5 billion, maybe 10, 15. There's a trillion $10 million investments. If you can have a machine to do 10 million a hundred times, that's pretty valuable. Some ways I'd rather have that than the one investment, but I need, I can't, at our scale, I can't have 40,000 people managing that asset. So leveraging off other platforms is something that I, I think we'd like to do more of, not less of. And, and local sharpshooters who know their vertical, who know their business cold and know real estate is such a local business. It is so critical that you, you know, I, I, I joke about it internalized, like the Harvard Business School people, I'm one of them, so I can, I can be critical of me. We think we're super smart, right? But because somebody told me we're smart because we got into Harvard Business School, not because we are smart. But we go to a market and we only see what's there today. We don't see what was there five years ago, and we probably don't understand what's likely to be there in five years. So we're taking a photograph, but we need to see the video, right? You need to see like, the, is are people coming or going from this area? Is the demographics change? Is the ethnicity changing? Is this a rising area or a weakening area? And I, I, I always talk about this strip center in Stanford, Connecticut, where I grew up. And if you went, if you're us, one of my guys, and we went to the strip center, we saw, oh, it's on a great location, great cars, good traffic. The corner of that center has been vacant for 30 years. Like if you're local, you know that. The tenant has never survived. They lease it and he goes bankrupt. Six months <laughs> later, he's out. So if you're local, you know that the guy, my my guy on his computer, it's just going to fill in for 95% occupancy, everything will be fine, you know? So having that, and when we started, Starwood, and I was buying apartments, I, in every market, I found a the local guy. Like I found this guy, Al Blum, who was in Denver. And he, I had him march us around Denver. Like, I don't know. And <laughs> I'm with Bobby Faith. We're in a car. We're in Colorado Springs and we're driving down the road. <laughs> and he says, he goes, and he says, well, that's T111 siding. And I'm like, I looked at Bobby and said, is that good or bad? <laughs> I don't even know what it is. So, but I, you know, I was, uh, it was interesting because I think the locals really know no. things and you don't. And, and, and you're, I'm very wary always of being a stranger in a strange land. We invested in India and we built with, we did everything right, I thought. We, we, we had the Hirandani family and Gornado was our partner, Steve Ross, Steve Roth, and a couple other local Indians. We built the greenest building in Mumbai, and it was half the building was pre-leased to Citibank and became their India World Headquarters. The land we bought from the state, and the state, from the, the state, I guess, the state of whatever Mumbai's in, when we bought the land, they had a gain. They were supposed to remit the money that they got apparently to the federal government, and they didn't. The federal government sued the state and put a lien on our asset, and basically, that, that lien is the most senior lien because the federal government that primed our mortgage. We had to pay off the mortgage. <laughs> and then the building wound up in like litigation for a year. And then we had a partner in the thing and he said, we had a put. So we said, we're getting out. He goes, good luck to you. I'm like, what do you mean good luck to you? <laughs> you know, we have a put. He goes, it'll take you 10 years to, nav- to litigate the put. So stranger in a strange land. When you go offshore, you don't even know what you don't know. Yeah. Like, and, and you have to get such a big premium for investing in what I call the emerging markets. And sometimes capital says, I want to be in Brazil or I want to be in India. In both cases, we went to Brazil and India because our investors want us to go. And they were hot. Yeah. 
But the rule of law is not our rule of law. Yeah. And and in India, with the, what we consider corruption, they consider doing business with the family. Yeah. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you hire your mother? Yeah. So, you know, it's very hard for foreigners to operate in some of these markets. You can do it, but just be wary. You, you don't even know the questions to ask because it's out of outside of your framework. I, In our investment memo on that building in Mumbai, it was never a risk that the federal government would sue the state and basically closed down our project. <laughs> Nothing to do with us. Right? Oh, well, just pay your taxes, guys, and we'll be back in business. But that that also happened in Brazil to us. We we had a pro- we, project with Related, which we funded, that got caught in litigation that you know, they said that we didn't have our permits, but we did have our permits. But then they said they were issued by a bad guy. I'm like, no, he was the guy in the job at the time. <laughs> so, well, was, so no, he's not a good guy. And now you say, how do I know you're not the bad guy? Maybe he was the good guy. And I mean, the whole project stalled and took years. In Mexico, the same thing happened. We, the pandemic struck. No, it wasn't the pandemic. It was the GFC. We sold the whole project out. It was in Cabo and Haciendas. And if we closed, we would have gotten all our money back and we had the whole second phase for free. And then the, everybody wanted their money back in, the, in 07, 08 when the crisis hit. And there was a judge and we, we, we won the case four times. And we kept getting sued again, and it just kept hearing it. I called Carlos Slim, who I knew. <laughs> I said, can you help us with this judge? This is going to, we're never going to get these assets to sell. But I mean, things go awry. And that's just, and that, that was internationally. The same can happen locally. Just you need to know these markets very, be very smart. And, and it's common sense, but smart people think they figured things out that they don't know. So is China investable? Not really for Americans right now. For Americans. Yeah, not for us. Yeah. The Middle Eastern investors have, you know, we, we are just politically, you can't, you can't underwrite the risk. I would just want to get to one more thing, which I think is another unique thing to you. You started Starwood Capital. Then you started your Starwood Hotel REITs. I'm, miss, I'm missing the name. What, what do we call it? Starwood Lodging and Trust. Starwood Became Hotels. the CEO of that. Yeah. And then it's like you kind of parked Starwood Capital for yeah. a decade and then yeah. grew this thing huge. And then you're like, hey, I'll see you on the other side of it. And how did you keep Starwood Capital going all those years when you so, were focused um, on something I else? I mentioned that Sheridan was in Boston and New York City and Weston was in Seattle and Starwood Lodging was in Phoenix. So I had to pick a new home for everybody. So I moved everybody to Westchester, the the survivors and and moved everybody out of Boston, Seattle. I kept the accounting in, in Phoenix because it was cheap. And then New York City moved to Westchester. And so I had a triangle from my home in Greenwich to my offices in White Plains to Starwood Capital. I appointed two of my lieutenants to run Starwood Capital while I was gone. And I spent, I work 120% of a normal human being. So I spent 100% of my time at Starwood Hotels and about 5% of my time at Starwood Capital, mm-hmm. just sort of watching what was going on. We had raised a fund and I left it for them to invest. And I, you know, being a public company CEO is an acquired taste. You know, I, I think there's incredible blessings. I went to Davos every year. I was I won the, uh, one of the top executives in the country with, along with the CEOs of Kodak for diversity early on in my career celebrating diversity. We were a Fortune 300 company out of air. And so I, you know, I got to meet a lot of interesting people, became friends with a lot of CEOs, not in the real estate business. And I, I enjoyed that because I really don't think of myself as a real estate person. I think of myself as an investor. 
and sort of my day job is real estate, but I have a family office and I do other investing and the disciplines you learn in, in real estate, the disciplines you learn how to negotiate, you can do that in any asset class. And real estate guys tend to be pretty good investors and have made money in other, like Sam Zell, in dozens of industries. Not so much the other way around, by the way, for some reason. But you see a lot of real estate guys be very successful in, in their family office or in, in investing. And I think that's kind of, you learn the discipline. And again, you learn about negotiating when to walk away from the table, when to stay, stay hard, that there'll always be another deal. So if it's bad, I was just re- reminiscing about a deal that's gone awry here and that my, my, my two, me and my president, we didn't want to really do the deal, but there was such pressure internally to do it. And it wasn't a bad deal. We just, there was some hair on it. And of course, looks like now we shouldn't have done it. So six years later, but you know, it, it's, it's not worked out the way we hoped. So being a public company CEO, I was, it's hard. It's really hard. You, you, it was really hard reading about yourself in the press all the time. The analyst community wouldn't really understand the company very well. It's very hard. Real estate, again, is a hard thing to be in a public company. Like we had to do stuff that was uneconomic to produce earnings. Like I'd rather own the hotel then lend against the hotel, but lending is an interest income stream. It's it's consistent across the year. Whereas owning the hotel, you, you have to take all the, the accounting for it is if you open the hotel the first year, you have to write off all the opening costs and it's dilutive to earnings. Even if you're going to, public companies can't report IRRs. There's no such thing. Yeah. So you have to do stuff. And Marriott had this giant book of loans that you get consistent earnings when you have loans because you get the same thing in the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, and fourth quarter. Started hotels owned a lot of real estate, particularly in New York City. And our first quarter is terrible. New York City is terrible. Then June on, it's Christmas every day. Oh, you, you make all, we made $93 million in New York Sheridan. We probably made 80 of it in six months and 10 in the first two months, first quarter. So they, they're analysts like, oh, they are merits, you know, even as they have a smooth earnings. Year. No, they don't. They had this huge, loan book that was giving them consistency of earnings and the market liked that better. But I was going to make more money long-term. The the loan, they get just paid back. I'd make money if I sold that hotel for three times what I paid for it. But So that was a little frustrating for me. I had done so many innovations in my, at the property level. I did the W, St. Regis. We started, I was going to call it um, XYZ was my new brand. They changed the name to Aloft. That became a lot. That was the cute little cousin to W Hotels. And I'd, I'd, I'd take, I got into Vegas. We did some branding stuff. We did the Heavenly Beds. We did dogs when the Sheridan went to the dogs. I'd done a lot of stuff. And, and the stock had been the best performing large cap hotel company in the world over my tenure. I won uh, Institutional Investor Lodging CEO of the Year, which d- dethroned Bill Mary, who had it for 300 years. <laughs> and I, I kind of thought I'd done everything. Started Capital wasn't faring very well without me at that point. There was, we had a $567 million fund and they'd invested like 300 of it over three years. And I, 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 I could go back and make 100 times the money I could being in started hotels. Yep. And actually, one of the interesting things is during that time I was there, the Enron crisis blew up and then WorldCom. And I had done a lot of silly things. Like I put some people on the board that I shouldn't have. I didn't know enough. And I, I put one particular person, we'll go nameless, and they were not business people. And when Enron and, and WorldCom blew up, this particular board member said, well, the business judgment rule has been suspended. And I'm like, well, how are we going to run the company if you can't make a decision? And at the same point, they asked 
what's a gross margin? Like, what's a profit margin? I'm like, oh, oh this is going to be a long <laughs> week. <laughs> and we went from having sort of our majority rule on the board to having the lowest common denominator running the board. And it became very frustrating for me. And I, you know, I wanted to buy, I did buy Meridian Hotels and that was, it was a big wall. It was just became very difficult to run the company. And we had some succession issues, not succession issues. I had an issue with my then president. And then we had a, one of the board members became the president and then she tried to throw me out of the company. And I, of course, the board threw her out, but it wasn't very fun. And so it ceased being fun. And I actually would, would have stayed. My next innovation in hotels would have been operating innovation. I would have changed the entire operating structure of how a hotel company ran. To do that, I needed a great COO. I needed a great operating part. I did not have one. And I was going to get massacred in the press. When Bob Nardelli went into Home Depot, he changed a whole bunch of things. And they pilloried him. And he was probably right. And, you know, they did a lot of dumb things. And and I knew what I wanted to do, but I did not have anyone to execute it. And it just wasn't worth it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you one last story, which nobody knows. So I'm selling, my, at the time I had a president who was, I decided to split with him and we owned Caesars, which came with IGT, the casino company. And we owned, I mentioned when we started lodging, had a bunch of casinos and I had had, I've been licensed four times in Las Vegas. So I've been in and out of the, which was a record. <laughs> so I hold the record, which nobody knows that either. <laughs> Because I think Sheridan, we took over, I think it was the Aladdin, became a Planet Hollywood, and we were managing it. So we went back to the Strip, and I had Caesars, which I had to get, and then I had to get licensed in New Jersey and Mississippi, and where we had all these other operations. So I decided when this, my, that I didn't really like the gaming business for Starwood, because the amount of capital you had to invest in a single asset was like the entire free cash flow of our company. So I thought it was too much concentration risk for us. And I also, I worried about the prolifer proliferation of gaming with the Indian casinos in California which is a huge feeder market for Vegas. So, but it was mostly the risk. And Caesars, you know, it was kind of old, you know, and they built this new wing behind Caesars Palace and it wasn't doing well. And it was beautiful, but it didn't seem to resonate with investors. They liked the old one. They liked the original Caesars, which had the mirrors on the rooms, on the, on the, on the ceiling. Like nobody wanted the new <laughs> yeah. rooms. They wanted the, the rooms with the mirrors on top. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Know your customer. And, yeah, know your customer. And the old, like the old, the old circle with the low ceiling where they, where the Baccarat pits were, they would gamble there, not in the giant, beautiful new gymnasium they built, which <laughs> didn't have any, the ceilings were too high. Steve Wynn, you know, that's, that's designed by the way. Steve Wynn, if you went to the, the Encore or even Bellagio, the ceilings were just as high. He pulled all the ceilings down by creating these little pits, like Laura Ashley pits. So you only think it's 12 feet tall, but it's actually 60 feet high. But that made you feel intimate. You felt like you were in this intimate gaming environment, not in a gym. Interesting. And see, and, and it's like, that's what you can't put on a PL. Like yep. its design was actually creating the PL for him. And when he did uh, Encore, he did the same thing. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm friends with him. And I was, an interesting experience. So anyway, I'm going to sell, I don't even know if I should tell this story. <laughs> Come on. I'm, I'm going to sell <laughs> Caesars. Uh, my partner at the time had negotiated a deal with Arthur Goldberg, who was the CEO of Bally's, which was a public company. And the price was $2.6 billion. I, I wanted three. And we, we got into this little tussle. He, he's left. And I call up Steve Wynn. I said, Steve, who I knew I said, you can buy Caesars, which, you know, Caesars sat between Bellagio and the Mirage. So this was the trifecta. I knew he wanted it. And I said, the price is $3 billion. He said, done. 
They said, okay, great. That's fantastic. <laughs> Yay. Because <laughs> my partner would never go to him. He said he'd quit if, if, if he, because he negotiated with Goldberg and Goldberg gets a 2.6 billion. So I go to Vegas. It's my, it's actually, this might be one of my friend's birthday parties. And I check into the Desert Inn, which we own too, into the Rand Araskog suite. Remember Rand Araskog, the CEO? Well, he built the most beautiful suites in many hotels just for him. Okay. So in the Desert Inn, there was a suite that, the Amir of Guitar w- would find opulent. <laughs> it was outrageous. I'm in that room. And I go to see Steve and I walk into his office at the Bellagio. It's this conference room is probably 40 by 25. It's 80 by 50. It's yeah. gigantic. And there's a billion dollars of art on the wall. And he goes, you know, well, great. I'm going to pay you 2875 and you can keep the Mississippi, Mississippi gaming boat. And I'm like, I don't want the Mississippi <laughs> gaming boat, but it's still better than the two six bit I had. And I really want to get rid of this business. So I say, okay, we'll, 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 we'll do that deal. And he thanks me. So excited. Gets, books me reservations at the restaurant that night. I go out to Shadow Creek to play around at golf. I pull up at the curb. There's six people to help me get out of the car, carry me into the locker room. I go in the locker room. My name's on the locker between Michael Jordan and George Bush. <laughs> I'm like, I go out and play around a golf on the 16th hole. Steve comes out from his house with his German Shepherds and we're, we're chatting. I get back to my suite. I pick up the phone. And I won't, this is a family broadcast. I won't tell you what he called me, but <laughs> he screams at me at the top of his lungs. And, you know, you retraded me, you I don't know if Steve's temper is legendary and I, yeah. I saw it. And what happened while I was on the golf course is Arthur Goldberg came back and bid three billion all cash. Oh, and God. I didn't know that. And he it was a banker that was involved <laughs> with it. I wasn't dealing with our banker. I didn't even know he did it. <laughs> so he I I said I, I hung up the phone. I called the banker. I said, but what's going on? Yeah, Arthur Goldberg showed up with three billion cash. I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I go see when I got, I, I call Steve. He's, I, he's, I can, he's spitting through the phone. I oh can feel his spit on my face. <laughs> he's screaming. I go see him. He's got the two German shepherds. I'm sitting in his office on the couch. He is screaming at me. He's the color of a tomato, you know, a ripe tomato. <laughs> and I think he's going to say kill. And I'm going to be torn to shreds <laughs> in his office. This is a nine, a 2000, I think. Yeah, probably <laughs> 2000. So I had just been just ripped apart in a Fortune magazine article, which was completely wrong. And I said, okay, Steve. And he goes, I'm going to ruin you, Stern. The last part of my name was became a swear word. (laughs) 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 You'll never do business again. I I heard you retrayed me. You're an asshole. I can't believe you've done this. And he's spitting at me and I think I'm going to (laughs) die. The dogs are going to come out. I said, Steve, calm down. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm a public company. I don't own this place. I'm just the CEO. I'll take your, I'll take your bid to the board. You'll be your two eight two five or whatever it is, and and the boat, and Arthur will be three billion. They'll take his deal because it's a public company, and I'll resign. But you can't say it was a bad deal for me because I was I had enough of this public yeah. company stuff. I'm done. <laughs> it's not worth it. I have no banker. I'm not paying a fee to anyone. I guess you don't even know who picked up the call, and then. Or you can come close. If you come to two nine all cash and he's at three billion two nine two five, I'll recommend your deal to the board. They'll probably take it because Arthur's a notorious retrader. I said, or I'll pay you twenty five million dollars to pretend you're there, and I'll sell the business to Arthur Goldberg, so a stocking horse fee. So he thinks you're still interested. 
and he's screaming at me the whole time. And I'm, I'm like, I'm like, I life is too short. Why am I doing this for the shareholders? I'm like, I'm trying to sell this company. I'm like, I don't know the company. It's like, they own the company. No, I'm just, in, and in walks Bobby Baldwin, who's a COO. And he says, Steve, can I see you? So Steve gets up on the couch. I don't know if he's on the couch. He might've been just hanging over me like a vampire about to kill me. And Billy Ball whispers in his ear and Steve turns to me and said, I'll take the $25 million. I'm like, <laughs> what just happened? What happened? <laughs> and he goes, oh, we forgot the overhead. Our bid is like two five. I'm like, oh, thank God. Oh my God. So wait, it gets even better. <laughs> so that night, so he was, I was, I was relieved. I wanted, I actually didn't want when to buy Caesars. I thought he'd spend so much money trying to fix it up, he'd destroy his company. And so I was very happy that Arthur Goldberg was going to buy it. I'm a terrible poker player. So I wear everything I, you see everything that I feel like, and it's good or bad, but I'm sort of right there in front of your eyes. <laughs> so I went back to New York. I stayed at the W in New York and Arthur was parked up the street and I never saw him. I, I consciously never went to see him because I was afraid that I'd blink and he'd know that I had no backup bidder. In fact, I, I actually got him to increase his price. <laughs> he went to 3.2 billion, but he was only authorized to do three. And this is how bad the press is. So I knew that he'd, he'd eventually he'd figure out that Wynn wasn't there and he'd cut the deal. So he gave us, what he did was 3 billion. The contract said 3 billion, but if you read the contract, which the Wall Street Journal and Fortune Magazine never did, it, w- it was public, they could have read it. I got all the CapEx that we'd spent on the hotel for the last two years, which was like $200 million. So I had three, two in the bank. Anyway, I'm leaving Vegas that night. I'm headed home. I have my plane. I'm taxiing down the runway at Las Vegas International. And my pilot calls back and said, there's a car chasing us down the, the <laughs> runway. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, what? He goes, look out the window. I look out the window. There's like a black sedan chasing us down the runway. And there's somebody with their, like waving something. I said, I guess you better pull off the runway. <laughs> we were on the taxiway. So we pull off. And we open the door, you know, he just stopped the plane, opened the door. And this guy who's a banker from who I won't mention his name to save him. <laughs> he goes, and he's holding his piece of paper. He says, Steve doesn't trust you. He needs you to sign the $25 million. <laughs> 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 I'm like, you're joking, right? So finally, I did this completely unauthorized. I had no board approval to do any of this, but they knew what was going on. So um, the long story short is our, um, Steve then, you know, the deal takes, you have to get approvals to close deals in Vegas. And Steve, has an analyst meeting in New York City and sings Broadway songs to the analysts. His stock goes from like 22 to 13. He's getting attacked now by Kirk Kikorian. So Goldberg knows he's not there anymore. So Goldberg cuts the price to 3 billion, which is the price I want all along. Fortune article, I think it was Fortune that said he out-negotiated me. I'm like, you should read the contract, dummies. <laughs> and then, but that's the press, right? And then, and the, the funny thing is I call Steve. I Oh, they didn't want the Desert Inn. So nobody took the Desert Inn. I still had the Desert Inn. And so I called a, my best friend at the time was a fellow named Butch Kersner who ran Kersner International with Saul Kersner. And we were young CEOs and we were pals and they put it under contract, the Desert Inn. And then their South African investor said, you can't close. So he gave me the money, the hard deposit was 15 million. Then Kukorian calls me and said, the price is $250 million and it goes down five, down, 5 million. I think it was a day <laughs> if I didn't respond. <laughs> I said, and I called Steve and I said, your only way, so he loses. Mirage Resorts to MGM, Kikorian buys it. And he has no place to go on the strip. I said, your only way back to the strip is to buy the Desert Inn. So he, I said, the price is 275 million. The analysts valued it like 100. 
And that was what I wanted. And he said, I'll pay it. So I sold him the Desert Inn, which became the win. And oh, now the really? Encore. He tore it down. And I Steve Wynn wouldn't be on the strip. So I played the opening round of golf <laughs> on that golf course, which he built with Donald Trump. <laughs> and uh, I don't know why Donald was in the foursome, but Donald and uh, two, two friends of mine. Uh, Steve Roth and, and Skip Bronson. And we have a picture of that. So that was the opening round at the win, which is the reason Steve Wynn got back to the strip was I, I basically sold him the Desert Inn. That is and, so funny. And that became Wynn Resorts. And Steve made a couple more billion dollars on that. So, <laughs> but an amazing, amazing, amazing episode in my life, a part of a book that I haven't written. We didn't really get to the market but let's just bring it home on this. It's 2024. You throughout 2024 were very kind of vocal about interest rates and w why you thought they couldn't be held where they were for very long. And now we're hearing six cuts. Where do you stand now? What 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 do we what do you expect so, in 2024? You're right. I mean, throughout 23, I was pretty critical of the Fed's move. I think the collateral damage to the banking system, the real estate world, wasn't well thought through because. And the reason I didn't think you needed to raise interest rates 500 basis points was the economy was going to slow on its own. What you, and inflation was going to go away on its own. The supply, what you did is very simple. You printed too much money and there were no goods on the shelf. So everybody bid for whatever was on the shelf and whether it was golf carts or Patek watches <laughs> or used cars, prices went up. But as soon as the supply chain fixed, there'd be, then the shelves would be full and prices would, would fall, and they have. And, and oil prices have come down, used car prices have come down. So the pandemic, but all this money had been printed and Americans still had it and they had a job. So they were spending it, and, but the savings would run out. Yeah. And the savings does run out probably in May of this year. The whole six trillion will have been spent. I mean, it gets recirculated, but it's been spent. So an, a rise in rates, he should have raised earlier when, Dogecoin was worth $64 billion and, <laughs> and the Lashibu, the baby Dogecoin, right? I mean, there was, you remember, it was like, it was a casino, it was chaos. GameStop. Was pure, GameStop, pure speculation. And the Fed was silent as a mouse and crazy stuff was happening. And they were quiet and they didn't see inflation. And the reason they didn't see inflation is a third of CPI is rent equivalents or rents. And his data on apartment rents is around 12 to 14 month lag. We were enjoying, we never saw anything like it. Rents went up 20% in apartments, not only in good markets, in every market, in Peoria, in Albany, Manhattan, Miami, <laughs> all across the country, rents went berserk. It wasn't obvious why, but they did. And the Fed didn't see it. Like we saw it, and they're talking inflation, and, and December of 21, he, he makes a speech, lower, longer. And he keeps buying corporate securities through May of 2022, basically essentially still easing and, and allows, and the Democrats who have to one-up Donald Trump come in and decide with the America's Recovery Act, they're going to throw another trillion seven of kerosene on this flaming fire. Donald had just done 900 billion in December before he left office. So it's $2.8 trillion of money we didn't need that only exacerbated this inflationary cycle. So Biden's package was, you know, was cut down from three trillion to one seven trillion, and was kind of a bridge too far. But I thought the I knew rents were slowing, and I knew that you this twenty percent that he didn't see would show up, forcing inflation higher. And just last month, and now we're sitting here. It's 
what is it, January? Mm-hmm. Last month's re- inflation report shows rents at up 6%. Rents are probably flat right now or, or up two. If you move rents from six to two, inflation falls below 2% and it will fall below 2%. So he will achieve his goal. I also don't agree with him. I think we should have wage growth. I think wage growth helps this country. Yeah. And I think if, as long as we don't have commodity pricing increases, wage growth is healthy and that's capitalism at its best. Like it's supposed to be this way. If you can't find a farmer, you pay him more and then we charge more for tomatoes. And that's how the whole nation benefits from the system, right? And people move to industries where they can get, like the fact that we had to pay housekeepers $20 instead of $14, it's okay. I have to pass it on or I have to get less housekeeping or more efficient housekeeping. That's capitalism. That's how the system works for everyone, not just the wealthy. So he's like trying to fight inflation and trying to get people on the unemployment line, which is he has to raise unemployment. Like that's not the goal of the Fed is full employment. So I thought, and he would also see that his actions were going to create two, not only a huge hole in the regional banking system, which it has, they've lost $800 billion where rates are, but the biggest victim is also the federal government that's running a $33 trillion deficit. And instead of paying 1% on the debt, they have to pay 5% on the debt. 5% 5% of our debt on $30 trillion is a trillion and a half of interest expense. Last year was $700 billion. The entire defense budget, and we spend 10 times in the next, we spend more than the next 10 nations combined is $800 billion. <laughs> And the deficit goes to the moon and beyond, and we lose control of our ability to actually control the, the deficit. The, we're going to have a $2 trillion deficit this year, not one. So I thought Powell, and the other, other unintended consequence is he's crushed housing starts. And now while we're finishing this wave of multifamily construction that started a year and a half ago before we raised rates when people thought rates were going to be lower longer because we listened to the guy, yeah, right? <laughs> it, now housing starts to plummet, multifamily will plummet, and he'll create a bigger housing shortage. He already did that. We, needed, we need much more housing, not fewer, but you can't build a house if nobody can afford a house with 7% mortgages, 8% mortgages. So he's creating a, a long-term worse problem by raising rates this fast not to impact us. He was just trying to kill the labor market, frankly, and kill inflation. The other thing is, he, the American economy is different than it was 50 years ago. We have half our workers work for healthcare, government, and education. Those three industries are not impacted by interest rates. Yeah. In fact, in this entire 500 basis point rise, they have not lost three jobs. And in 2007, 2008, those three industries added 354,000 jobs. So half our labor force, he can't touch. He's just impacting the other half. Yep. If you look at the other half, construction is his big aim. Private construction's cratering. Like industrial is down, what, 70%? Yep. And apartments will be down 60, 70% in, in, in 14 months. But the infrastructure bill, the government's hiring all these people to build bridges, roads, and tunnels. Pay them the most. Net losses in construction jobs are approximately zero right now. We lost a million construction jobs in 07, 08. So, okay. Manufacturing. They lost a million jobs of 708. We have only 15 million people employed in manufacturing today. It's 170 million person labor force. It's very hard to impact that. And then, so the only thing left is services, regular business, hotels, retail. To get people to stop spending, we basically gonna have to put them on the unemployment line because Americans continue to spend because they're employed. And what I missed about the strength of the economy was the scale of government spending. It's $3 trillion. Local governments and, and municipalities are spending at five times the rate they did pre-pandemic. So it's booing GDP, but you look at the polls, everyone thinks the economy sucks, right? And they want to vote Biden out, even though they, the headline numbers are good because it's all government spending. 
Yep. So he's created his own. So the Fed shouldn't be focused on real estate. They should be over the street screaming at Jan- Janet Yellen in the Congress to stop spending money because <laughs> they're spending money. He's trying to slow the economy with a with a sledgehammer and they're got the pedal to the metal <laughs> with all these, you know, the climate bill, the infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Act. They're all good. I think those are all worthwhile. Of course, we should have done the infrastructure bill under Trump when interest rates were zero. So we could have financed it with 100-year bonds at 1% instead of now having to finance it at 5%. But so I'm I'm pissed at Powell because I don't think this was necessary. And and you know, he there is a sea change in lending in, in the market and a huge portion of our economy is based on property and the payrolls and tax rolls of all the municipalities and all the cities and what pays for the for the police and, and waste management and school system and teachers are property taxes. And to the extent he crushes the values of these properties, he's hurting eventually these governments will have to let people go. And also, you know, other things like I won't get into immigration policy, but that's no good either. Yeah. So it's so Powell, I think, and you will see inflation come down. Now you asked me about twenty four. I don't think we're going to see six rate cuts, and it's not for the reason you think. Yeah. First off, as long as people have jobs, they seem to be willing to spend, even though they're maxed out on the credit cards. The you know consumer spending is the American consumer is amazing. He find more things to buy he doesn't need than any consumer in the world, right? And has a short memory. And has no memory, yeah. right? No memory. <laughs> Cannot remember. We look. We live weekend to weekend to see who's winning the football games, right? We couldn't remember what happened two weekends ago, right? We were all into Taylor Swift, and now she's just dating Travis Kelsey, so like we don't talk about her anymore. But you know, it's like we're, we're, we're very... But that's our strength. We're an optimistic nation. We have no memory. It actually is a strength compared to many nations, the Europeans in particular. But Powell's job is over in January. He's mm. out. This January or next? January 25. Okay. So... No matter who the administration is, he's out. I don't think he wants to be the guy that let inflation reaccelerate. He's going to try to make sure this thing is dead, dead, and dead. So two percent, which will hit probably in May, uh, inflation. I think he might wait a couple extra months. And if we're waiting for the collapse of the economy to actually be a huge drop in rates, as long as the government's spending this much money, I'm not sure we're going to see a collapse in the economy. Yeah. So. You know, where I'd look at the industries that lost jobs last time, and the, one of them's off the table, construction. You know, we, and we are on our board of one of our companies is the head of a big construction company based in Dallas. And how's business? Fantastic. Like, how can it be fantastic? We're canceling projects everywhere. But we're all finishing what we had going on. Like, everyone's finishing the multifamily property, so the construction jobs haven't been lost yet. But he said, well, you know, it used to be 70 private and 30 public, and now it's 70 public and 30 private. Mm. And they're keeping him busy building bridges, roads, and tunnels. Yeah. And if you go online, invest.gov, you can see all the projects they have going on across the country. It looks like a measles map. There's measles, like little dots everywhere, every state in the country. In New Hampshire, which had the primary just the other day, somebody in on TV said, you know, the state's buzzing with all the bridges, roads, and tunnels. I go, that's why we have a problem. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, yes, I, I know. And, and so it's, I think Powell should lower rates and and the re- he should lower rates quickly. And the reason is very straightforward. I don't think it's going to reaccelerate the economy. I'm not even sure what will happen to housing prices because we had housing prices rise when they should have fallen because there was no homes for sale because nobody can move out of their old mortgage. So the supply of homes for sale will grow and it probably will dampen inflation in houses. But a third of our debt is rolling this year. So 33 trillion, 13 trillion rolls this year. 
And he can pay 5% on that, which is 500 billion, or he can pay 3% on that, which is 300 billion. <laughs> a couple hundred billion goes a long way. Yeah. You know, the entire Ukraine, Israel budget border thing is 100 billion. So we yeah. can do two of those, right? <laughs> if he just lowers rates to 300, 3% from 5%. And somebody's got to wake up in Washington because, you know, they're, they're, this country would be twice as successful if Washington didn't exist, in my opinion. Washington has been an incredible hindrance to the success of America. And we love each other a lot more than they think we do. And half of our nation's independent at the moment, half. And all they talk about in the media are the Republicans and the, the Democrats. Democrats. And the half of us in the middle, like, what's up? Like, so Donald Trump is 60% approval ratings in the Republican Party. 60 of 25 is 15% of the nation. 85% of the people are like, the Democrats, no. Yeah. Independents, they voted, 70% of them yesterday voted for Nikki Haley. Yeah. So, you know, it'll be very interesting. The, the, the game is in the middle. The problem is the two parties, all the middle, the reason that independents have grown from 20 to 30, 50% of the nation is all the moderates have left both parties and the parties are concentrated with extremes now in yeah. both sides. And you got to appeal to the lunatics on the left and the lunatics on the right <laughs> or you won't get the nomination. So, and well, if you try to go after Trump, if you're a Republican and you go after Trump, you're Chris Christie. And in that party, you get no votes, right? And then, you know, Biden is inexplicable. You know, I, I mean, obviously my mom's turning 90 in, in, a, in two weeks. She might be better off in the White House than he is. <laughs> She's more <laughs> articulate. I mean, I never thought of, I'll write, I'll write my mom in. She's pretty good. I mean, she walks better than he does. She doesn't run into flags and stuff. So I mean, we could, we could, we could, we could do better with a different set of candidates. For Will sure. we ever see you in Washington? Maybe as a cabinet minister. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I won't run for office. I would never do that to my family. What a shame. Barry, this has been a true honor. I really <laughs> appreciate you sitting down with me tonight. Well, it was, it was cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, good luck. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 